We're now entering the time that says talk, uh, sermon, whatever you want to call it, um, where we're going to be looking at a Bible passage, and you'll find that on the inside of your sermon sheet. I didn't say a particular warm welcome to visitors from the canvas factory. I hope you think you're warmly welcome. Um, we're looking at uh, Luke 9, and we're looking at the same passage we looked at last week, uh, for those of you who are here, and then the continuation, because the connection is crucial, um, literally. And so, um, before, we, before Antoinette reads that to us, um, I'm going to pray uh, to ask the Lord to help it sink deep into our hearts, rather than us just read black and white on a page. So, um, let's, let's pray together. Lord Jesus, thank you that as the word of God the Father, you came down to seek and save lost people like us. Thank you that you lived a life that didn't just happen somewhere in the clouds, but you lived a life that was recorded in real history by real people and real experiences. And thank you that you said truths that uh, transform lives and we pray that as we listen to your words now recorded to us uh, for us by Luke we pray that you would uh, speak by your Holy Spirit so that these words would come alive for us today that we'd have uh, the experience of you shaping us and changing us and making us more like yourself in your precious name Amen so, inside of your service sheets, uh, if you need one, there's a few more. Um, you'll need a copy. Um, and then there's some notes on the other side uh, to help concentrate. But Antoinette's going to read the whole of the passage on the inside of our service sheets. So, reading from Luke chapter 9, verses 18 to 36. Once, when Jesus was praying in private and his disciples were with him, he asked them, Who do the crowds say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. But what about you? he asked. Who do you say I am? Peter answered, God's Messiah. Jesus strictly warned them not to tell this to anyone. And he said, The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law. And he must be killed, and on the third day be raised to life. Then he said to them, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self? Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. Truly, I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. About eight days after Jesus had said this, he took Peter, John and James with him and went up into a mountain, onto a mountain to pray. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed, and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. 
Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendour, talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He did not know what he was saying. While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son, whom I have chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they had seen. Thanks very much, Antoinette. Okay, so, quite a long passage. We're going to spend a shorter amount of time on the first half, but I think that's the, as I was saying last week, that's the very sort of heartbeat of the Christian message and what Jesus came to do, and we'll see that as the weeks go on, as we carry on through Luke, because Jesus repeats this message. But to, um, to help us to uh, come to grips with it, we're going we're gonna to dig in. And I, you often think, kind of, how do you start a talk to try and grab people's attention? Well, hopefully, as we just look at that first bit, it will grab our attention enough to not need a kind of clever introduction. This is a summary of what we looked at last week, and you'll see it on the um, outline of your your service sheets. Um, These are the four points that we had last week. This is identity, his mission, his call, his warning. And verses 18 to 20 you've got his identity, and there's lots of ideas around about who Jesus might be. Uh, Some saying John the Baptist, some saying Elijah, still others that one of the prophets of long ago has come back to life. And what we get to see here is that comparing Jesus to one of those is to identify him as, yes, a great man. And there are lots of people, even atheists, who would say that Jesus was a great man, and Muslims would say he was one of the greatest prophets, um, that he's still alive today. But actually... What we're going to see is that to call him just a great prophet, even one of the greatest prophets, is like comparing, like trying to describe the sun and saying well, it's a bit like a light bulb. Jesus is God's Messiah. And that means, that I've put on the, the screen and on the sheets, God's long-promised rescuing king. Promised throughout years and years, hundreds of years of Old Testament history, the first half of the Bible. He is God's long-promised rescuing king. Then the question comes, well, what what does that mean? And here comes the first shot for the disciples, that his mission, in verse 22, do you see that on the sheets? Jesus said, the Son of Man, that's the the name he gave for himself, it's a kind of kingly title, the one who uh, would be given all authority to rule with God's authority, would be worshipped by all, it's a divine, God-like title that Jesus uses for himself. And he says, the Son of Man must suffer many things. And be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law. He must be killed and on the third day raised to life. God's long promised rescuing king must suffer and die to conquer sin and death. And we saw last week how Jesus is picking up imagery of um, Isaiah chapter 53 where it talks about God's servant who will come to suffer and die 
on behalf of his people, those who trust in him will be made righteous. It's the heart of the good news. It's the saddest thing that ever happened, but the best day, and that's why we call it Good Friday. Because on Good Friday, Jesus took all the pain, the hell, literally, that we deserve on himself, so that as we trust in him, we might be given life. As he rose from the dead, we rise with him. And then the question comes, well, what what does he demand of his followers? And this is where it gets really hard. This is uh, the really hard part. Let's look at it in in the verses again, uh, on the sheets. Uh, Verse 23, Then he said to them all, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. I put it on the sheets or on the screen. Lose your life daily for me. Lose your life daily for me. That, that idea of being crucified, it's not, a, it's not a metaphor, it's not just imagery that Jesus is using. The only people who took up their cross in those days were those who were literally going to die. It was a one-way journey. And Jesus is saying, yourself must die. But then he does make it picture language, doesn't he? Because he says daily. I mean, how can you literally die daily? But what he's saying is that the cost of following him is literally excruciating. I don't know if you knew that the word excruciating comes from the word crucifix, as in the cross. So Jesus is saying that the daily experience of the Christian life would be that our selves that are independent of God would be crucified daily. So often we hear the message that the Christian life should just always be full of amazing joy, and we should always be feeling fantastic. And so much of that is true, and of course the Psalms call us to praise. But actually so much of the reason that the Psalms call us to praise God and to enjoy Him and to delight in Him is because in and of ourselves, we just have our own way of doing things. And we kind of treat God as if He's irrelevant, and we think, I've got my plans for today, and I'm going to get on with it, and I'm going to feel fine. And Jesus says, you need to kill that. We thought last week about how if you don't depend on God for everything, if we don't die to our own independent desires, then we're like a a branch cutting itself off from a tree. And it would be weird if a branch each day thought, hey, it would be great to be free from this tree. (laughs) Of course it would die. And yet, inbuilt into all of us is what the Bible calls sin, which means that attitude of pushing God out of the picture, of being independent from Him. The Sunday school definition I saw again yesterday was, shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule, S-I-N. Shove off God, I'm in charge, no to your rule over my life. And that independent attitude, that desire to be God over our own life, kills us. And so Jesus says we must lose that independent life, kill it daily. And instead, trust in him, follow him, listen to him. And in doing so, well, do you see verse 24? For whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Just like a branch, if it wants to save its life from the tree, it will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me will save it. Verse 25 is obvious, isn't it? Totally logical. What good is it for someone to gain the whole world and yet lose or forfeit their very self. It makes perfect sense, doesn't it? 
and yet it's not going to be easy. So much so that Jesus then, in love, gives a warning. Verse 26, Jesus' warning. It says, verse 26, Whoever is ashamed of me and my words, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his glory and in the glory of the Father and of the holy angels. I'm coming again in visible glory to judge, Jesus says. And if you're ashamed of me now, then I'll be ashamed of you then. If you insist on being like that branch, carrying on, trying to be independent on its own, then ultimately I will give you what you've asked for. And you'll be thrown into the rubbish dump of history. Which is unutterably awful. Those are hard words, aren't they? Really hard words. There's an amazing promise of life there, a fullness of life, that if we, if we do trust in him, if we follow him, then we will receive our very selves. We will gain something better than the whole world for all eternity. We will be the people that we were made to be. But in the meantime, it's going to be hard, really hard, so hard that the best picture Jesus could think of to use for it was being crucified. Was being crucified. Well, I'm going to pause there, and I want us to have a little discussion, so why don't you chat to the people next to you. What troubles you about Jesus' mission, his call, and his warning? Maybe you could put it differently. How would you think the disciples would be feeling at this point? And what would they want to convince them that this was worth it? So, you can... Discuss the question, what troubles you about this? If you want it broader or more specifically, what do you think it would have taken to convince the disciples that this is worth it? Um, let's have about two minutes just discussing the groups. Okay, let me interrupt the old conversations again. Maybe you've only just got going. Maybe you were waiting for a whole minute thinking, come on, we've exhausted conversation. Um, what were some of the thoughts that you had? Maybe speak for a neighbour if they were helpful. That's fine when I say that, everyone gets silent. <laughs> Difficult to quantify. Difficult to quantify? Yeah. What do you mean by that? What do you mean by that, sir? <laughs> 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 okay. What do you mean by that? <laughs> I think, what does it mean to lose your life? Like, yeah. you, you talked last week about, and we picked up here as well, mm. the idea that you can lose it on the big things, and we focus on that, mm. actually, it's the daily yeah. things. And, and then what's that it's so helpful that Jesus says daily here, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Um, otherwise we'd just be thinking, yeah, if he called me to go to the mission field, I'd go to the mission field. If I won the lottery, I'd give it away. But, yeah, it's a daily Well, We thought of building on that, we thought it was a bit extreme, in a sense. Yeah. Uh, we kind of like the idea of church on a Sunday, uh, but the idea of the responsibility of being Christian every, every, every week is, in the world that we live in, a little bit extreme, maybe. Yeah. 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 Go on now. That if you if you're taught, called to lose your life daily, you want to know that it's really what you're doing is really true. That Jesus is true. Yeah. And yeah. maybe you wish he was physically there with you. Yes, you'd want him to be physically there with you. <laughs> yeah. We we get more of that later on uh, as we think about the Holy Spirit, but. Um, uh, yeah, you want to know. You want to know whether it's really true, whether it's really reliable. 
and we were chatting in our group that Adam said very helpfully that it's a bit like when you're dating and wondering whether you're going to get married. Um, I don't think Haley used the same language. As, <laughs> if you want to get married to me, you've got to take up your cross. Yeah, publicly. <laughs> um, but actually, that idea, we, we thought about how it's, it's a difference between the first date and then the kind of going out for a while. First date, you're like, do I want to see this person more? And then the going out is working out, are they the person that I met on that first date? And is that a good thing? What does that look like? Are they trustworthy? And so on. And um, I suppose that's a big question. You want to, if someone's going to make such massive demands on your life, so marriage is a big demand, Jesus' demand is way bigger, then you want to know whether he's reliable. And I think that's where this next section comes in. It's often a bit confusing. I, I must have read it about ten times before I really started to understand the connection between the two things. But just have a look at verse 27. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. It's a bit vague. But he's just said, I'm going to come in my glory and the glory of the Father and the holy angels. And then he says, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God. So there seems to be a connection with these, these two things. Now, I think it's vague because actually it has multiple fulfillments. But I think the first is in our next passage. And in all of the gospel accounts that mention this, these are next to each other. And so we get verse 28. About eight days after Jesus said this. So you see how Luke's wanting to draw our attention. He's not just saying about eight days later in a new episode. He's saying after about eight days, uh, sorry, about eight days after Jesus said this. And then we get this next episode that's known as the Transfiguration. You'll see it listed as that in your, in your Bibles. So we get this extraordinary scene, and I don't know if you remember it as Antoinette read it, but just in case you don't, I'm going to read it again, because I want the kind of language to sink in. Because if we just read it once, we're just like, oh, amazing. But if we let the language sink in, we might see different links. And what you'll see on your sheet is the emphasis is on the Old Testament setting, fulfillment, command. This is looking back, and this is making a connection between Jesus and what's come before. Don't worry if you're not familiar with the Old Testament, that's the part of the Bible before Jesus came. But you'll start to see that the Bible has one big overarching story, a thread working all the way through. And we're going to see some of that uh, this afternoon. So, about eight days, uh, verse 28, let's pick up the story. Verse 8, 28, on your sheets. About eight days after Jesus said this, he took Peter, John, and James with him and went up onto a mountain to pray. Now, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that mountains are pretty significant. As he was praying, the appearance of his face changed and his clothes became as bright as a flash of lightning. Very hard to describe, but it's amazing. Two men, Moses and Elijah, appeared in glorious splendor talking with Jesus. They spoke about his departure, 
Footnote? Exodus. Exodus. In Greek, that's literally what it is. Exodus. Second book of the Bible. Which was, he was about to bring to fulfillment, which he was about to bring to fulfillment at Jerusalem. Okay. Jerusalem significant as well. Peter and his companions were very sleepy, but when they became fully awake, they saw his glory and the two men standing with him. They, they play us on side here. They're slow. They're slow throughout the whole thing. It's amazing how the disciples in, in the gospel accounts, if they made this up, they'd be really um, bigging themselves up. Uh, they'd want to look good. They'd look like the good guys because they want the people who are listening to them, who they're preaching to, to trust them. But as you read through the eyewitness accounts, you see that the very people who go out to spread the message come across as complete losers in the accounts. And that suggests that it's true because you wouldn't make something up and then paint yourself as a loser if you're trying to convince people from your own strength and power. Anyway, let's keep going. Verse 23. As the men were leaving Jesus, Peter said to him, Master, it's good for us to be here. Let's put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. Luke tells us, he did not know what he was saying. <laughs> While he was speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the clouds. And a voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I've chosen. Listen to him. When the voice had spoken, they found that Jesus was alone. The disciples kept this to themselves and did not tell anyone at that time what they'd seen. Well, it's a pretty amazing sight in itself, but it's way more than just the visuals. If you are familiar with your Old Testament a little bit, you'll see the Old Testament setting there a little bit. And that's our, our first point. And we've kind of covered a lot of it. That they're on a mountain. Really key things happen on mountains in the Old Testament, especially where there's appearances of God. When people meet God on a mountain, it's a very, very important point. So Moses met God on a mountain, Mount Horeb. And he... Um, he received the law. Uh, the first five books of the Bible uh, contain uh, history, but also specific laws as how to live in, in God's place under his blessing, um, as he would have us live. There's a mountain, then there's the, the glory of the Lord, but this time it's the Lord Jesus in burning brightness. Well, on that mountain where God met Moses, he was by day a pillar of clouds, by night, a pillar of fire, and when he met with him, he was like shining, blazing brightness. And then there's Moses and Elijah. Well, Elijah had a similar experience to Moses on the same mountain, Mount Horeb, uh, which is, that's a, a photo of Mount Horeb from, from, from the time. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm just checking you were listening. <laughs> I, I felt people were falling asleep, and it's like... It's just a black and white photo of Matt's horror. And um, so Elijah also had an experience of God on the mountain where he appeared in blazing brightness. Then the clouds signifies the presence of God, as we've already seen, and then the voice of God coming from the clouds. So there's lots of stuff coming from the Old Testament. In verse 30, those two men, Moses and Elijah, they appeared with glorious splendor, talking with Jesus. Moses, as I said, he's the one who, who summarises the law, the first five books of the Bible. And, and when the Bible is referred to by itself, when, when the scriptures are referred to, the Old Testament is referred to as the law and the prophets. Moses represents the law, Elijah represents the prophets. He's one of the first sort of classic prophets, as they're known. 
And actually, you get something amazing in, in, in the last book of the Old Testament, in Malachi, if you're taking notes, Malachi 4, 4 and 5, almost the last two verses of the Old Testament. And it says this, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the decrees and laws I gave him at Horeb for all Israel. See, I will send the prophet Elijah to you before that great and dreadful day of the Lord comes. And that's the last thing that God says before Jesus. 400 years passed and people were thinking, when's he coming, when's he coming? And then here on the mount, these men get to see Moses and Elijah together with Jesus. And the thing that's so striking is that Jesus is greater than that. He's the one who's, who's radiating burning glory. They don't go to, to God who's radiating burning glory, they go to Jesus. They are the ones talking to him rather than to, to God himself. He is the one who's identified in the voice. Jesus is greater than the greatest prophets of the Old Testament, the ones pointing forward. And they haven't got in their minds yet the concept that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit. There are lots of hints of it. But it's only as Jesus comes that they get to see that maybe this isn't just a man. They'd already asked the question when he calmed the storm. Do you remember what they said? They said, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. Well, that whole setting, that setting of on the mountain confirms who he is. And so... If they're playing that dating game and Jesus has just said, these are my demands, and they're thinking, okay, you've got to prove that it's worth it. Well, it's worth it. Because this is Yahweh himself, the Lord God. The Son of God. Well, secondly, the Old Testament fulfillment. And here we're just going to zoom in on verse 31. So we've seen the setting, and then we zoom in on verse 31 on your sheets. They spoke about his departure, footnote Exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. Well, again, if you know your Old Testament, you'll know that there's a whole book called the book of Exodus, and it's about the Exodus that where Moses led the people out of slavery in Egypt into the promised land. And it's a picture that if you read through the whole rest of the Bible, they're always looking back to. This is God rescuing his people. God is good. We can trust him because he rescued his people from Egypt. He brought them through the Red Sea. He parted the waves and into the wilderness and then into the promised land. We can trust our God because of this. Do you remember the way they were able to leave? Do you remember that last plague, as it was known? where God threatens the fairy, said, unless you let my people go, I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. And Pharaoh kept saying yes and then no, and yes and then no. And finally, God said, if you don't let my people leave, then all the firstborn sons in the whole land will die. It's tragic. And yet the way that the Israelite firstborn man, God, God's, God's people's firstborn sons could be saved, was if they took a perfect lamb, a perfect lamb without any blemish, a year old, never done anything wrong, and they killed it, and they spread the blood over the doorposts of, your ha- of their house. Now that might seem like weird imagery, but the imagery was very, very powerful. It was saying, 
you people, you're, you're my people, God's people, but you are no better than the Egyptians. You've got no reason to look down on them. You deserve to lose your firstborn as much as they do. But I'm going to provide a substitute. I'm going to provide a perfect lamb to stand in your place. And as you kill that lamb, as you look into its eyes, as you cut its throat, and you see the life drain out of that, you should think that should have happened to us. And then you spread that blood over the doorposts of your house. And as the angel of the Lord passes over, he'll see the blood and he'll know that that sin in that house has been paid for. And he'll carry on. And here we have Jesus talking to Moses and Elijah about his exodus. That would, do you see verse 31 again? About his exodus, which he was about to bring to fulfilment at Jerusalem. You see, this is the turning point in Luke's Gospel where, where we've seen Jesus' amazing identity. We've seen his love and his compassion for people. We've seen his healings, his, his miracles, his calming the storm, his, his power over, over nature, over death, over evil. And here Jesus says that his mission is going to reach its fulfilment like the Exodus as he goes to Jerusalem. Because Jesus is what that little lamb was only a picture of, a very powerful picture of. I mean, just imagine those, those kids, I mean, probably the boys would have been loving it. Hey, look at all that gore and stuff. But actually, that as they see the life come out of that lamb, they're thinking, oh, this is serious. The fact that we push God out of the picture, the fact that we, that we ignore him most of the time, that is really, really serious. And he should leave us like a branch on the ground. He should cut us off. But instead, this lamb has died. But how can a lamb, how can a little lamb pay for the life of a human being? How's that work? Of course it can't. It was only ever a picture that needed to reach its fulfillment as Jesus, the true Lamb of God, went to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, and to pay the penalty of your sin, of my sin, the way that we treat God. So that as we look on him, we don't just see a lamb dying in We see the perfect son of God. The one who should be coming on us in judgment. Taking that judgment on himself willingly. In love. So not only is he the great promised king, the divine ruler. Who the whole of the Old Testament pointed to. And Peter, James and John get to see that before their very eyes. But then they also get to hear that he's the fulfilment of the Exodus. He's the real rescue plan. As he himself takes on himself what we deserve. And you know, Elijah's there also because Elijah points even further forward in some ways. To the glorious ultimate return. You see, Jesus didn't just die to pay for our sin. He rose again from the dead and then he ascended into heaven and sent forth his spirit so that people like you and me could know God personally. And then he promised that he would come again. And Elijah was there to testify to that. Well, it would have been an amazing experience, wouldn't it? 
And so what Peter tries to do at this point is to try and prolong it, to, to keep it going. Do you see verse 33? I mean, wouldn't you try and do that? Verse 33, as the men were leaving, Peter said to him, uh, Master, uh, it's good for us to be here. Um, let's put up three shelters, one for you, one, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. He didn't know what he was saying. Of course he didn't know what he was saying, but he was so caught up in the moment. He thought, this experience is just amazing. We've got to keep this going. Let's put up tents. Let's stay here. Let's enjoy this, this amazing experience. I've just, just seen how amazing you are. But then, verse 34, while he was still speaking, a cloud appeared and covered them, and they were afraid as they entered the cloud. No wonder they were afraid. They, they saw the imagery here. This is the presence of God coming on them. And then we get the Old Testament <coughs> command. Now you'll see with the last few words why I've put this cheeky picture up. Do you see verse 35? A voice came from the cloud saying, This is my son whom I have chosen. Listen to him. Listen to him. Peter, you've got your plans, you've got your ideas about how these things might go better, how to prolong the experience. You just listen to him. And this is the ultimate clarifier of, of Jesus' identity. You know, the date nights have continued, they're getting to know each other. And then the ultimate, the glory and the voice of God the Father, combines to say, all you need to know is that Jesus is the real deal. He's the chosen one. So listen to him. But you... What we probably don't notice here, and I was hugely helped by just reading lots of commentaries and hearing lots of different things on this passage, is that although this is the voice of God the Father, the amazing thing that God does is he, he quotes himself. He quotes scripture here to say it. So verse 35, a voice came from the clouds saying, and there are three short quotes here, this is my son, and it's exactly the same language that points us back to Psalm 2, where the Father says, this is my son of the Messianic King, who's going to be given all authority to judge the nations. Whom I have chosen, again is a quote or an allusion to Isaiah 42, verse 1, where the Father says, this is my chosen servant. And he talks about he's the one who's going to heal and bring justice. And then ultimately in Isaiah 53, to suffer and die. And then the third, feel free to, to take these notes. So Psalm 2, Isaiah 42 verse 1, and then the third, Deuteronomy 18. Listen to him. is the language of God speaking to Moses, saying that I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, who's going to lead the people and speak my words to them. Listen to him. And it's so striking, isn't it, that as God the Father speaks to Peter, James and John, there on the mountain, and they're looking for another experience, he says, I- I've said it before, and I'm just going to say it again so that you're really clear exactly who I'm saying it about. It's about Jesus. Listen to him. But it also reminds us of that thing that we so easily forget, that when you read scripture, when you read the Bible, when you hold 
this in your hands and as you start to read it, that God is speaking. It's the voice of God. And we get Jesus doing this the same. We'll come on to it in however many weeks, months, years, when we get to Luke 24. When at the end, there are two of Jesus' disciples wanting an experience, and they haven't seen him yet, and they're worried, is he really real? And he comes and walks alongside them, and they're wanting an experience of the risen Lord Jesus to know, yep, this is the real deal, the rumours are true. And he keeps his identity hidden from them, and instead he gives them a Bible study. And he opens all the Old Testament scriptures and points to himself in the scriptures. And then at the end of the day, when he's had this amazing Bible study with them and this great conversation with them, he shows himself to them and then he goes. And you'd think what they'd say is, wasn't it amazing at the end? Did you recognise him? I recognise it was just amazing with Jesus right there with us. But instead they say, Luke 24, were not our hearts burning within us as he talked with us on the road? And opened the scriptures to us. The things that made their heart burn, the things that gave them, the thing that gave them an experience of God was His Word. And they didn't even recognise Jesus was standing with them. But the thing that got their hearts burning, got them really excited, was that Jesus was showing them how the Old Testament was fulfilled in Him. And so it's no surprise that you get in the letter to the Hebrews, right at the end of the New Testament, the writer of the Hebrews says. So as the Holy Spirit says in Hebrews 3 verse 7, and then he quotes Psalm 95. He's quoting something written a thousand years before Jesus. And he says, as the Holy Spirit says, present tense. And the point that Jesus gives them and builds up and builds up as the Gospels go along is, the experience you need is in the Scriptures. I don't know about you, but I need to hear that at the moment. As some of my life plans, my aims for Jesus giving me a better experience, my equivalent of saying, let's build these tents here and we can all hang around and really enjoy this great experience. As, as my joyful singing on a Sunday turns into the humdrum of, of a Monday and a Tuesday and a Wednesday, I think I need an experience. And the Lord says to me, This is my son, whom I've chosen. Listen to him. I've told you that before. It's in my word. That's what you need. That's where you'll find that experience. And you know, years later, Peter looked back on that moment, knowing that he's seen the beauty and majesty of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in looking back on that experience in in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, he reminds his readers to trust the eyewitness evidence written in the letters of him and the Apostle Paul and others and of the prophets of the Old Testament. That's where he takes us. You don't need to have the flashing lights. What you need is to come to the God of the Scriptures and ask him by his Holy Spirit to speak to you. And sometimes, as we read the Bible day by day, it will feel boring and monotonous. Sometimes it does just feel like the words on the page, but maybe there'll come a point where we have a moment where we see it all fall into place, and we see things like this, and all that stuff we'd heard before and we just thought was facts is actually pointing to Jesus and helping us to know him better. And so the question is, are you listening? Are you listening? 
And by that, listening doesn't just mean reading lots every day, although I think it's a great practice to, to have a daily quiet time, as it's known, to get up in the morning and set aside some time to read God's Word and just work your way through. So you're trying to get to know the Bible. But it doesn't just mean that. It means, are you really listening? Because these disciples clearly weren't. They'd heard and seen so much. And yet they still didn't get it. They still didn't get it so much to the point where Jesus actually died on the cross. They abandoned him rather than looking forward to Sunday. And they play us on side, but they also rebuke us. Are we really listening? You know, our youngest son, Henry, he gets told a lot not to whine. I think he probably gets told not to whine about 30 times a day. And then he, he often gets told, stop whining, Henry. Now, do what mummy and daddy say. And then we often have this phrase, we say to Henry, we say, Henry, where are your listening ears? And he goes like this. And then we know we've got his attention. And then we say it again. But then the next day, he'll do the same thing. And it's like we've not told him, you who are parents or who've got experience of nephews and nieces, you'll know that experience. And God has that experience with us. Are we really listening? There, there are things that I learned years ago. And I, as I was listening to the sermon, I thought, oh, that's so good. I must have. And when I'm preaching, when I'm a pastor, I'm going to preach like that, and that's going to be great and great and great. And you know what my biggest experience of being a pastor has been? And the Lord is teaching me now what I failed to really listen to, as I thought one day I'll be a pastor. That one day I'll give up my life for Jesus, and I'll serve him as a pastor. And I was failing to hear that day by day I needed to listen to him, to trust him. That actually my plans weren't the important thing, it was his plans. And as I set up my tents and I plan out my life, he says, are you really listening to the Lord Jesus? I wonder what that is in your life. What is it that you're not listening to? We can help each other. We saw how we could help each other. At the, right at the beginning of the service, we saw on the front of the service sheet that the peace of Christ ruling your heart since as members of one body you were called to peace. We need each other as a local church. Just like a hand needs the arm and the internal organs and so on. We need each other. And then he says, Let the word of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through through the Psalms, through the hymns, through the songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. We need each other. We need to sometimes teach each other, just encourage each other, build each other up. Sometimes we need to admonish each other. The easiest way to work out whether that's happening is is to meet with someone regularly and say, in what way do you think I'm not really listening? And they may have a hard word for us, but if we keep asking that question, then they will help us to kind of spoon-feed God's word into our lives, into our circumstances, into our situations. What we need is not actually those big experiences, although those add together with the evidence of the resurrection to show us that what we're reading here is is reliable stuff. But what we need is to daily listen to him and wake up each day and say, Lord Jesus, I heard your word yesterday. How am I not living it out? 
What does it mean for me today to take up my cross, to crucify my own plans and desires, and to follow you? And to ask each other, what do you think it means for me to crucify my plans and plans? We can do this for each other. We can build each other up in this way. I've spoken for long enough. I was intending to keep it shorter. But the biggest issue is not whether you're listening to me. The biggest issue is whether you're listening to Lord Jesus. So why don't we close by praying. And we've not got any songs planned after this. And so now's an opportunity perhaps to pray with those who are sitting around. If you don't feel comfortable praying, please feel free to stay quiet. Um, but why don't you start? I'll, I'll open in prayer, but then in, your, in the groups around where you are, why don't you pray with those who are around you? And then chat about these things, and uh, those who are on setup will bring around uh, tea and coffee and food. And uh, feel free to stay here for a good hour. Um, there's plenty of food if you want to uh, eat something. Uh, let me lead us in prayer. But why don't you continue on in a spirit of prayer, asking Jesus that question how we're not really listening? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this amazing passage. We thank you for that amazing experience that, that Peter, James and John got to see how you are the fulfilment of all those Old Testament prophecies. Uh, prophecies. Thank you for the fact that they were reliable eyewitnesses, so reliable that they're willing to show that they're complete numpties in the way that they record these events. <coughs> Part of us cries out to you and asks you for a similar experience in all the troubles that we're going through. We want to know that you're really real. We pray that we would be humble enough to come to you and trust you and to listen to you and to allow each other to speak the truth into our lives, to think about how we're really listening, whether we're really listening. Oh Lord Jesus, please would we have those ears to hear that you talked about so that we can be more like you taking up our cross daily following you and experience life in all its fullness as you always intended in your precious name we pray Amen Amen